Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Represent, an Elect 535 podcast. We're bringing you a roadmap to build a better Congress. My name is Nick Bushkar, and I'm joined by the co-founders of Elect 535, Michelle Olson and Rena Schneer. Hey, Rena. Hello, Nick. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Nick. And as always, we're joined by political journalist Angela Carbone. Hi, Angela. Hi, Nick. Today, we are rounding out our three-part series on the 2022 Senate races. So far, we've covered Georgia, Wisconsin, <coughs> Pennsylvania, Arizona, New Hampshire, Ohio, and a surprising Missouri in the competitive column, as well as 16, shall we say, almost certainly not competitive states. Today, let's start in the battleborn state, Nevada. Angela, Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto is running for her second term in a state that Cook labels as likely D and Sabato ranks it as lean D. What do her chances look like in the upcoming year? Well, one thing about the, the Nevada election is what's happening in Vegas won't stay in Vegas because a lot depends on the turnout in Vegas as to whether the Democrats can hold this Senate seat. Um, Catherine Cortez Masto was the first Latina elected to the Senate and still has a uh, approval rate of 40 percent, which is pretty darn good. Um, but things could change dramatically because the Republican National Committee is pumping a lot of money into this race. They, they see this as a as the as a Senate seat to uh, flip. Uh, right now, they're funding a series of digital ads that brand her with these dreaded socialist label. Each time you search her name, and it doesn't matter what you're searching for in relation to her, one of their ads pops up as the first choice to click on. Um, but Cortez Masto has a pretty good way of raising enough funds for a defensive campaign. She had a tough campaign in 2016 and was left with very little money. But in the first quarter of 2021, she raised $2.3 So now she has $4.66 million to play with. And as the former chair of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, she knows some good donors to, to help her in her quest to, to be reelected. There are three factors that influence the election in Nevada. One is the read machine, another the character of the Nevada voters, and then it's the Vegas, the Vegas and Carson City Reno turnout. Now, Harry Reid created the read machine back in 2010, pumping a lot of money to build a strong state Democratic Party and brought along pro-immigrant and environment, environmental organizations working with the Las Vegas unions. And that Reed machine is working for, for Cortez Masto. Um, and in Nevada, you have a push and pull of two different factions. You have the Wild West libertarians, definitely red, definitely anti-tax, but you also now have Democrats. Uh, the tech boom around Reno brought in a lot of young, college-educated Democrats from California. 
And speaking of Reno, Las Vegas and Reno are are big factors in the race because outside of them and their immediate suburbs, they're the only blue parts of the state. Um, If Vegas turnout is big, then Nevada will continue to go blue. But if Vegas is low, it could mean that the Republicans could win. Um, And another smaller factor, but it could could prove a problem for Cortez Masto, is that the Nevada State Democratic Party is now led by the Democratic Socialists. And that's the big bugaboo uh, in political speak. There are no Republican challengers announced, but two people are being discussed. One is former Republican Governor Brian Sandoval. Um, he trounced his Democrat Democratic opponent in his race for governor. Uh, but right now, luckily for Cortez Masto, he loves his job. He's president of the University of, Re- of Nevada in, at Reno. And uh, he's hesitant to leave that for the possibility of a Senate seat. Former Nevada Attorney General Adam Laxall is also co- considered a possible runner, but he appears more interested in the governor's seat now held by um, Steve Sisolak. So there, and there are a few others that are being touted, but nobody has stepped forward and, and de- declared. So it's going to be an interesting race in Nevada, I think. So if you had to gamble, Angela, would you bet that she would stick Cortez Master? She would make it? I, I think so. She has, she's a, she was rated the third most effective senator by the Center for Effective Lawmaking. Um, and she does enjoy a pop, a popularity. Um, she has a popularity factor. So I, I think she will, but a lot can happen. Well, heading to the other side of the country, three-term Republican Senator Richard Burr has announced his retirement. North Carolina was a disappointment for Democrats in 2020, but an open seat a hopefully successful Biden presidency and further changing demographics definitely give Democrats a chance. Rena, what can you tell us about the upcoming race? So first, let me say that disappointing is an understatement uh, because North Carolina disappoint, was disappointing on three levels. The congressional level, specifically North Carolina 09, which had... Uh, kind of a fraud uh, congressional run in 2018, had another uh, special election, and uh, then McGreedy lost uh, by a small margin. Then, of course, the Senate race that uh, Tillis won, and then the presidential race that Biden eventually lost the state. And there was a lot of hope that North Carolina would kind of turn before Georgia did, uh, but he didn't. So um, there is still hope, and I hope, uh, I hope, and we all hope that that will actually come through. Um, how many candidates have filed already? Any guess here? We did this for Missouri last time. F- five. Mm. Formally filed. Twelve. Michelle? Two. 17 again. Oh my goodness. 
And those are just <laughs> the ones that formally filed. Many others are in the talk, so I'm not going to go through all of them. But let me start by who is not running. So uh, Governor Cooper said that he would not run. Uh, the main, one of the main reasons is that if he uh, runs for the Senate, the lieutenant governor, who is a Republican, Mark Robinson, would take his place, and he doesn't want that to happen. Another person on the Republican side that is, uh, declared that he was not running is Mark Meadows, uh, of course, former chief of staff. And so who is running? Who filed? On the Democrat side, uh, there is a former North Carolina Senator, Erica Smith. She lost in 2020 the primary to Cal Cunningham and kind of keep that in mind because we will have a few candidates that are filing or have filed or considered to uh, file that lost in 2020 or 2018 to their opponent. So she is one of them. Another one is a current state senator, Jeff Jackson. He's kind of in the lead in terms of the buzz and also in terms of money. He's raised uh, quite a lot of money already, uh, really half a million in the first few days after he declared. So he's kind of uh, making the, the waves. A couple of other candidates to note is um, a mayor, a mayor of Beaufort, uh, Newton, and uh, he's running. He's a, also a retired colonel, so he's bringing the vet, veteran aspect. And I would also mention a viral, virologist, Richard Watkins. And the reason I'm mentioning him is that not only that he's a scientist, but he's also, he played uh, football at Fayetteville State. And so coming back, if you recall from the previous podcast, we are creating a sports team in the Senate if all these are, um, candidates are going to win. And then on the Republican side, uh, at least at this time, there is a former uh, U.S. Rep. Mark Walker, and uh, he, is opt he has opted not to run for re-election for representative, maybe kind of... Uh, uh, fear, from a fear that he would lose. So at this time, uh, he also claimed that he was uh, and has been backed up by uh, the former um, guy, the former president. And he, he was the one that filed first out of all these uh, 17 candidates. Another one is uh, Jen Benward. And she kind of runs on the premise that she's not going to get donations from anyone. That's kind of remains to be seen. On the considering, so these are the people that filed, but there are many more that are considering to run, and very strongly, some of them. A former North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley. Again, she lost her position in 2020. She was also uh, the first black woman to serve as a chief justice, so she has some uh, clout. Another one is former NASA astronaut. Look at, at this diversity of the candidates or candidates-to-be. Joan Higginbotham. Again, she's, uh, she's the third black woman that uh, went into space. 
And so that's another kind of aspect, as well as uh, North Carolina Supreme Court, Court Justice Anita Earls. Uh, she runs on a quite progressive, uh, so more to the left uh, agenda. And Attorney General Josh Stein, as well as former Secretary of Transportation Anthony Fox. So you see there's quite a lot of diversity. On the Republican side, in the considering, is of course Lara Trump, uh, the um, daughter-in-law of the former guy, and of course she was very active in the campaign and was endorsed uh, strongly by Lindsey Graham. Remains to be seen how that will affect her chances or her running. There are a couple of others Republicans considering. Uh, Re Representative Ted Budd, who kind of got into the news because he was one of the uh, pushers to censor Senator Barr before Senator Barr announced his retirement. And former North Carolina governor, Pat McCrory. Again, he lost to Cooper in 2016 and now wants to run for the Senate. So he lost the governorship run in 2016. So another one in those uh, lost columns. He, he also, he, he has just announced. Oh, he just he, announced. He did announce, yeah. He's not on Ballotpedia yet. No, not yet. Not yet. He has but not made it that's yet. That's because it just happened. So... Um, that's kind of, uh, there are a couple of others, like the Carolina House Speaker, North Carolina House Speaker, who is very prominent, of course, Tim Moore. So he has, you know, uh, a bit of a name uh, recognition. And the Rep uh, North Carolina Republican Party Chair, Michael Whitley. Um, and so that's kind of the candidates but I want uh, from the Democrats and the Republican. But I want to mention a couple others that did announce. And usually we don't mention the independent and the li libertarians uh, candidates. But I want to mention a couple of them. Uh, Kimri Reinhardt is running as an independent, but is a former bar staffer. So actually kind of after January 6th, she decided to become independent. So that would be kind of interesting. She already filed. And another one is Shannon Bray. He's a veteran. And the reason I'm mentioning him is because he actually ran in 2020. And he got 171,000 votes, almost twice the margin between Tillis and Cunningham. And he did it with raising about four or spending $400 on his campaign. Yes, $400 got him about 3% of the votes. So all I could say is spoiler alert. Well, for our final competitive state in the series, we look to Florida. Not only was Florida a disappointment to Democrats in 2020, but in 2018 as well. Marco Rubio is running for his third term and has continued to shift towards a populist playbook in the ever-trumpeting state. Michelle, do you see this as an adept move, and where do you see Florida heading in 2022? Well, we were all excited 
to see what would happen in Florida, thinking that this could be one of the more fun races to cover with the whole Trump entourage having moved down there and Ivanka Trump making uh, motions that she might be willing to offer Rubio a challenge. However, our hopes were dashed and uh, former President just recently announced a formal endorsement of Little Marco, as he likes to call him, for Senate 2022. So Ivanka won't be running against him, and it's very unlikely that any other Republicans of stature will dare to cross Trump and risk his ire. So we're going to have to look for Democrats to make this an exciting race. And we may not be disappointed there. As of yet, there are no formal Democrats of stature having declared. But there looks to be one who is on the cusp of making such an announcement. And that would be Representative Stephanie Green from the 7th District, which is a very purple district um, in Seminole County, Florida. She has not formally declared. She has not made an announcement However, she has registered the website, stephaniemurphyflorida.com, and their campaign has apparently started to do some serious polling, polling her likability versus Val Demings, and as well versus Ted Dooch. Another one that they polled against was Maria Celeste Araras who is a Spanish broadcaster down in the Florida area. So it looks like she will probably be jumping in the race shortly. The other name that's prominently mentioned is, of course, Val Demings, who we may recall was a vice presidential consideration, and she received a lot of national press as a result of that. And she's been a representative in the Florida area, again, in a purple area for a long time. And as a person of color has a certain appeal, especially among the Democratic voters there. Which takes us to look at what Florida looks like for a well-contested race. And on Democrats in general have to concede the point that Florida is getting shaded more and more red from purple as the years go on. And this is especially exacerbated now that the entire Trump dynasty has moved down along the eastern seaboard there. If you look at the results from the 2016 to the 2020 presidential races, you can see that Trump went from getting 46 or excuse me 48.6% of the vote in 2016 up to 51.2% of the vote in 2020 and this was driven largely by a shift in latino voters in florida he's especially strong among older voters who tend to vote more in off year elections and there's just a reckoning that the democrats have always counted on a hugely disproportionate amount of Latino voters voting Democratic. so And that has been shifting over time, where a lot of conservative Latino voters are going home to the Republican Party. In 2018, uh, Scott won 
taking over the seat of uh, Nelson. And I see that this is probably going to be a really hard seat for either of Val Demings or Stephanie Murphy to take over, but you never know. And I'll call that a wrap on Florida. But Scott, Scott, I just know, wanted to know that Scott, when he flipped the seat, he won by a 0.2%. So there is maybe hope there. Um, any any chance uh, Matt Gates is going to run? I have not heard about Matt Gates, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if this was his last term. I will point out that DeSantis, the governor, is on the ballot, and that will bring out more voters. It's hard to say what his impact will be. He was at first excoriated for his treatment of COVID. But they haven't had that same third wave. And some people are starting to say that his more loosened approach to the COVID pandemic actually has support among many conservative voters down there. So it's unclear how that will impact. I will point out that Nelson, when the seat was flipped, he was very known in the state, although he was considered generally a weaker candidate a weaker senator. So it's possible that with a really strong campaign of Al Demings or Stephanie Murray could take over. Well, I'm going to kick things off now uh, for our lightning round of non-competitive states. And in Hawaii, Brian Schatz is, an, is the incumbent. And he was first appointed by Governor Abercrombie in 2012. And Schatz beat Republican John Carroll by 51 points in 2016. A Republican hasn't come closer than losing by 25 points in 2012, and uh, there is no talk of a primary challenge. Uh, really, uh, the only interesting thing I found about Hawaii is that um, it's the state that has the least overall amount of senators. It's only ever had seven senators, and one of them was a Republican, uh, Hiram Fong, who retired in 1977. So uh, this looks... Um, uh, Pretty solid for Brian Schatz. And, uh, and so, uh, Michelle, what can you tell us about Colorado? Well, Colorado is less blue than Hawaii. We could start there. It's also less blue than New York or Washington or even Massachusetts, probably. But it's still blue. Michael Bennett will be running again although he has not formally announced. It's expected he will shortly. There are currently no candidates running against Bennett for the Senate. There was some talk of a rematch with Ken Buck, who's a well-known Republican in the state. However, he formally tweeted that he would not be challenging Michael Bennett. Bennett has received a lot more publicity from having run for president in 2020 Although it was a short bid, it did get his name recognition up, certainly in the state. If he does win the re-election, he will actually be the first senator from Colorado to win a third term for 50 years. So they like to change him up in Colorado, but we expect that he may indeed be that first third term senator from Colorado. And that's all there really is to say about there. I, I think it's about as solid blue as it comes. Rena, kicking us off uh, for the solid Republican states, uh, what can you tell us about Utah? So Mike Lee is running again. He's the incumbent in Utah. 
Usually I would say not much to say about it. Um, he won by 68% in 2016 and certainly is expected to win again. But recently I would just mention that he's been on the news because he joined the other two musketeers, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, in uh, filing a bill to uh, end the antitrust exemption for the Major League Baseball because they pulled their uh, all-star game from Georgia. So why is he doing that? Remains to be seen. He has been kind of leading antitrust fight against big techs before, uh, but joining those two is kind of a bit off the rail. But we'll see. He's pretty safe, I would say. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, so moving to South Carolina, Republican Tim Scott is running for re-election, and uh, he beat Democrat Thomas Dixon by about 24 points in 2016. And uh, the last Democrat ever to hold a Senate seat in South Carolina was Fritz Hollings, who retired in 2005. Um, uh, however, he was a conservative Democrat and first elected in 1966, uh, resembling an era before now, but <laughs> before the political shifts of the 60s. Uh, and that, that's just to say that there basically has never been a modern Democrat elected in the state. And so uh, you have a few Democrats who have announced um, Angela Getter, who is the chair of the Spartanburg Democratic Party. She's announced as well as state representative Crystal Matthews. And um, other than that, uh, Joe Cunningham is being uh, sort of talked about. He surprisingly won SC1 in 2018, but then lost in 2020. Um, and so uh, that really is, that, that's all there is so far for Democrats. And that's going to be a real long shot. And so um, uh, there is one Republican who has announced uh, uh, their, his primary challenge against Tim Scott, and that's Tim Swing. Uh, and he uh, is saying that Scott didn't handle the 2020 election correctly. He isn't tough enough on big tech. And he's basically following the current Trumpist playbook. However, Trump has already endorsed Tim Scott. And so to me, uh, the race is over. <laughs> Tim Scott's going to win. Um, and so uh, from there, Rena, what can you tell us about North Dakota? So North Dakota is another safe state for the incumbent. John Hoven, he's a banker. He's quite affluent. He's been serving since 2011. Before that, he was the governor of North Dakota. Uh, some would say that he seems a bit more moderate than others, but that's not clear. He won by seven, like he had 78.5% of the vote in 2016. So even if he has some challengers in the primary or in the general, he's safe. Michelle, what can you tell us about Arkansas? Well, John Bozeman is up for re-election. He is a Republican and probably a pretty safe Republican. He won in 2016 with 60% of the vote. And Arkansas went for Trump by 62% of the vote in 2020. He is actually going to face both a primary challenger and a challenger in the general at this point. As a conservative Republican, he did not challenge the vote for Biden in the election, and so that offered him some vulnerability. And indeed, uh, 
pro-gun advocate Jan Morgan has declared that she's going to offer up a challenge to him in the primary. She is a conservative commentator and a certified concealed carry gun firearms instructor. So I think we have a sense of where her uh, interests and, and political alliances lay. In the general, there is one Democrat who has declared against him. His name is Dan Whitfield. He actually ran as an independent against Tom Cotton in the last election. However, due to COVID, he was unable to garner the 10,000 signatures necessary and was required to pull out. This time, he's going to be running as a Democrat and, according to his website, a liberal Democrat. So we'll see how that goes after him having declared himself an independent in his last run. I look at this as a pretty solid win for John Bozeman if he wants it. Now, up north to Alaska, Lisa Murkowski uh, was first appointed to the Senate in 2002 by uh, by the governor. And um, she's known for being one of the few remaining centrist Republicans in the Senate. Uh, being famously moderate, she voted to con- convict Trump uh, in the second impeachment trial, and she famously won a writing campaign in 2010 after losing her primary to Joe Miller. Uh, she beat Miller and Scott McAdams uh, as the writing candidate, uh, which is pretty wild, and proves that she's quite popular in the state. Um, one of the most interesting things about Alaska coming up is that they recently passed ranked choice voting, and so that's going to be in play for this race. And uh, you also have Trump, who stated he has plans on campaigning against Murkowski, calling her disloyal. And so uh, for the Republican side, you have Bob Lochner, who has uh, announced his run, and he's a mechanic and a previous Senate candidate. And you have also Kelly Shabaka, and she's the former, former commissioner of the Alaska Department of Administration. And she's running towards Trump, saying that that Murkowski is out of touch uh, for voting to convict Trump. And then you have other potential names uh, like the current governor, Mike Dunleavy, and also Sarah Palin. So, uh, but besides that, there are no other declared candidates. Um, And to me, uh, this is going to be a race about um, Trumpism versus Murkowski and also um, the the interesting sort of curveball of ranked choice voting. So we are all rooting for Mikowski, right? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and do you think her vote to impeach will have any impact on the right? So it's a great question. I, I think that, um, look, Alaska, if you look at the previous candidates there, um, there really is no Democratic presence. But there is an independent and libertarian streak, which shows that they're not a straight Republican state. Um, there are independent thinkers there. Um, uh, and, you know... Lisa Murkowski is now coming to that as well. And so just sort of intuitionally, I would say my sense is that I think that that vote will actually, if anything, if it's, if it's not neutral, then it might actually help her. So Angela, our final state, what can you tell us about Kansas? Well, Kansas, let's see if, if Dorothy and Toto never went back to Kansas, I think they'd still be Republicans because everybody is a Republican in Kansas. Um, Senator Jerry Moran uh, is running for re-election, almost guaranteed to 
be reelected. He's he has forty uh, percent approval from the voters, um, and he won his his election in two thousand sixteen, sixty two percent versus thirty two percent. He's considered a an average Republican. Voted with Trump eighty one percent of the time. Very vocal against the the uh, Affordable Care Act, against gay marriage, for gun re- against gun regulation, and Medicaid expansion. So, and he fits in with the with the Kansas voters. Kansas has consistently. Pew Research Center did some polling there and found that ideologically, thirty nine percent of of the voters in Kansas were conservative and 31% were moderate. Um, Very strong conservative, partly moderate stance there. Um, The only challenger he has is a candidate called Michael Sotart, who is now running as a Democrat. But in 2020, he was a Republican candidate for a the first congressional district in Kansas, and he lost in the primary. Um, and the same year, he was running for mayor of his own town, and he lost in that election too. He he's an anti-abortion conservative who uh, says he was ordained three times. So I wouldn't call him exactly a really serious candidate. So I think Moran will just waltz into the uh, the Kansas sen- senatorial seat again. Thanks, Angela. Well, we have now gone through every single state, and I just want to uh, ask any of you, uh, what is your overall sense of 2022? Are you optimistic about uh, Democrats holding on to power? Uh, and what do you see as being the the most interesting places? What are you looking for? Um, I just uh, put it to any of you. I think we have a pretty good shot at increasing our seats in the Senate, much more so, I'm much more sanguine about the Senate than I am the House. There are so many races that are more competitive for Democrats than Republicans, where I think we really will start to flip those. I'm not sure which ones will are, are most likely at this moment, uh, but there are enough out there where I think we could take take up a couple of two. Do you guys agree with me? What do you think, Rena? I definitely think that, that the Senate is in a way safer than the House, but uh, I think it all comes down to the strength of the candidates. Uh, it will be really so that the state and the history of the state is, of course, very important, but you can see a difference when a strong candidate comes uh, into the race where there is somebody that's not as as energizing, let's say. In addition, this is an off year. It's not a presidential election year. So we need candidates that will and causes that will bring out the voters. Of course, the, the voter suppression that has been going on may be one factor that will, in fact, bring out the voters. Yeah, I think Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Wisconsin, they're all ripe for the picking there. Um, And Missouri is always there, too. (laughs) Well, we will definitely return and keep you all updated on all things Senate-related when it comes to the 2022 election cycle. I want to thank the three of you for joining to go over these details. And now that we've covered the landscape of the Senate, we set our sights on the House. Michelle... Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks, Nick. It's been fun. Thanks, Angela. See you soon. And thanks, Rena. Let's continue. My name is Nick Bushkar, and this has been Episode 3 of Represent, an Elect 535 podcast. Thank you.